but we can make sense of it. You know, like over the years, I've been able to pull out the essence of it. And as I say, you know, my little sound bite is that totality happens above you, around you, and within you. It took your breath for a minute. Yeah, I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh my god, this is all happening. And before I knew it, it was over. It was sad. This is crazy. This is so nuts. I'm Letitia Ferrer. And I'm Chris Alexander. And this is Totality Talks, the solar eclipse podcast. It just took my breath away, the whole thing. It's really cool that you can see the corona and you see the sun kind of spewing out from behind the moon. It literally took our breath away. A lot of people said overrated, but that was like Not one overrated. of the coolest things I've ever seen. Not overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Totality Talks. Today we have part one of our interview with clinical psychologist, eclipse chaser, and community planner extraordinaire, Dr. Kate Russo. She's a native of Queensland, Australia, and has authored pioneering books on the psychology of eclipses. We dive right into our chat with Dr. Kate. You want to start? Uh, yeah, yeah, I stayed with, I, I, I kind of hogged it last time with Fred. Oh, but she no, actually, ahead, she was slobbering all over him. I was. I'm We've such all a fan been there. Girl. I'm such a fangirl of Fred. Did I tell you? Okay, just real quick. Did I tell you I I got his photograph of the 91 eclipse, had it printed on cloth, and made my wedding dress out of it. And then I wore it to like the 21 like the 2014 solar eclipse planning conference and had him sign it. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That's commitment, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, such a fangirl. <laughs> I fangirled him too when I first met him. Like, actually, it was in Galapagos, you know, the, the same trip you were on. Oh, yeah. 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 So totally fangirled. <laughs> it's good that they're our network I think I fangirled now. him then too. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's good that there's our network now, but I think I fangirled him too in 20, 2005. <laughs> Okay, so when when was your first one? Because I met you in I met you again in 2012 when you were doing your book launch. So when was your first one? My very first total solar eclipse was in 1999. So I had, um, do you know, it's one of those things I'd always put in the back of my mind that I will see one one day. And then I was studying so much and focused on all my studies, and then um, left Australia, travelled around the world. And it was only then that I started thinking, right, where, where is the next one that I can actually chase? So, so I think I, I learned about the 99 path back in, it was probably late 98. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it was funny because I didn't know about eclipse chases or chasing. All I knew was that I had to get into the path. I didn't know about weather. So I, didn't, I had no research on anything about how do you pick where to go? All I thought was I looked at the path. I was living in Northern Ireland, so I thought, right, France is really close. And I actually needed to travel out of the UK around that time to come back in to get my visa st- stamped on my passport. So I thought, wow, this actually works. I can just pop over to France, um, <laughs> see the eclipse and come back. And um, that was the amount of research that I did. It's embarrassing now. And you know, looking back on it, I, I was very lucky to see it because so many people didn't see that one. Uh, 
But that was my first. And so I, I traveled there and my hubby and I went, that was our first eclipse and we saw it together. And it was, I, I organized, um, we actually went as part of a bus tour um, from Northern Ireland on a bus, five days to Paris and bus back. It was, wow. it was crazy, but it was actually really very, very affordable. And um, I didn't need to do any planning for it. And I think at that time I was probably, what was I doing? I don't know, busy with something, I'm sure. Um, so it, it just was almost like an afterthought, but it's like, hey, this is the time I'll see it. So I get there and it's just heaving. I, I had no, I'd done no research on it, didn't know anything about this community. We were just dropped off there. Um, and we saw the eclipse for the first time and I, I just, it, it threw me, you know, I thought I knew what was going to happen. I mean, I, I hear everyone say this, but when, when it happens to you the first time, you know, you think you know what's going to happen. And um, it's something I had been preparing for and looking forward to seeing for many years. But, wow, I just couldn't speak. And when I get emotionally overwhelmed, my throat closes, right? So other people have this all these other reactions, but my throat closes. I cannot speak. And it, um, you know, I, I just couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, I, I knew all the sequence that was going to happen, um, but it was that around that time when the light started to change, that's when it became something that I thought, whoa, this is different. <laughs> this is unexpected. So probably, you know, maybe 10 minutes before totality where the quality of light is so different. Up until that point, it was just something like an entertainment thing that we were, you know, engaging in, seeing the glasses on and off. We had some wine, patisserie, um, you know, little um nice nibbles that we had um but we started standing up at that point because it commanded your attention you couldn't just you know see it as a backdrop of something else it commanded your attention and wow i just remember the darkening of the sky and um the the change in the atmosphere it was like electric and the crowd the buzz of the crowd was something i was not expecting and we've all been in huge crowds before, you know, like you can have that, uh, what's referred to as collective effervescence. You can have that, experience that, but there's something electrifying about a crowd response to totality. So I was not expecting that. <laughs> and then just the moments before, you know, like just seeing the changes in the birds and, and the darkening and it was like so much was happening in a very, very quick moment of time. And, and it just... You know, I just, I, I getting goosebumps, just blew my mind. I just could not believe that the shadow sweeping over and then just standing there and seeing, looking, looking right at it. I just couldn't believe it was happening. And it was that sense of um, expectation versus reality. And I think back then we didn't have anyone talking a lot of detail about what it was like to experience it. Um, so I thought it was going to be interesting and exciting. I'd heard that it was awe-inspiring, but wow. So no expectation to being completely blown away. And just those moments of it, I don't remember, I actually don't remember too much about how it looked like because it was more about the response to me and just being there and just being in that moment, not being able to talk. Um, it was only later that I saw photos of it and saw that there was a lot of cloud in the sky, so we were lucky to see it. But that that was irrelevant for me. I, I didn't, didn't even factor in the weather. Um, and just, you know, that moment, it felt like forever as well. That, that my first total solar eclipse just felt like time had stopped and I was in this completely different universe. And 
Um, I was aware of around around me, you know, and I was speaking to my hubby at the time as well. But I was in this little cocoon with the universe, and that magnified time, and and it really shifted me. And I could not put words to that experience. I was just choked up, thinking, "What the?" <laughs> and then it was over. And then it's like, "What? What? <laughs> Don't go." <laughs> Hey, wait. Just that going from the peak of exaltation to just the drop of, oh my God. Um, And it was just thrilling and exciting. And I I couldn't talk. And I was just looking around and everyone was cheering and high fiving. And, you know, we were talking to people around us. And my hubby and I were just interacting. But I, you know, I, I was still in this, my own little bliss bubble, I guess. I just. Oh, and I didn't know when the next one was. We didn't have Google. There were no smartphones back then. So it was like oh, um, no. we had to wait five days until we found out where the next, you know, where. You had to go to the library. Went. Yeah. You had to go to the library. You had to go to the library. That was just funny. Isn't it? I did have internet at home. So, you know, we, we just had to go home, not the library. Um, yeah. Okay, okay. But just changing my life and, yeah, it was just phenomenal. I think we jumped ahead just a little bit. Can yeah, we get yeah. just a little brief, a little bit about, you know, where you're from and your background and how you progressed down this path yeah. to being an eclipse chaser and having it change your career at the same time? Right. So I'm I'm actually living on the farm that I grew up on. So I am born and bred in an wow. awesome. just outside of Ingham in North Queensland, Australia. Um, so what an amazing circular journey I've been on actually. (laughs) Um, but it's, I grew up in a very small rural area and, um, it's a really nice community because it's very close knit. It's an Italian community. My surname is Russo. And, you know, there are many, mostly when I was growing up, it was mostly an Italian community and, um, you know, a lot of, uh, people are first, their lang- first language is Italian, like my mum, and um, so we have a lot of cultural things in our community, and it's quite nice. But growing up here, there wasn't a lot going on, um, and I always felt that I was a little bit different because I wanted to experience the world and wanted to know all about there, and I had this urge and desire to travel, and um, I had it, um, pen pals. Do you remember old school pen pals back in the day, you know, <laughs> where, you, where you wrote to someone and, you know, weeks later you'd get oh, a letter yeah. back. And um, so I had pen pals from all around the world. And that would be really exciting just to get a little snippet of life, what life is like in different areas. Um, but this little community is, is heart and soul of my background. And, um, and, so I, I was here, I grew up, and then I went to my first degree was um, at the nearest university, at James Cook University. So it's about, I don't know, two, two hours, an hour and a half from where I am here now. And that's the progression. Most people who come from here go to that university um, and then move on from there. I was the very first person in my family to go to uni. And I left home at that point and it was, you know, I studied psychology. And it's not because I had this burning desire to be a psychologist. I was just fascinated and I wanted to do everything. <laughs> I actually, had, I struggled with trying to figure out what it is, what is it that I want to do? What's the pathway here for me? I just knew I wanted to learn more and experience the world. And so I, I was doing several things in my first year, but actually it really clearly was psychology that fascinated me. So I continued on that path. So that was my first degree that I completed, four years of study there. 
And then I went on to do more study in clinical psychology. So you can specialize in different areas of psychology. And that's more about the clinical skills and helping people identify and um, change and address issues that are causing them distress. And um, and I, I, I love that. And so that was my second degree. And I went to Brisbane to do that. And that was a master's in clinical psychology. And so after I completed that, that was quite a few years of you know, tertiary education in a row. So I was, you know, eight years or so. So I was desperate to travel. So pretty much as soon as I could after that second degree, I left Australia and, you know, one-way ticket, travelled around, and actually I never came back for a long time. <laughs> that was not wow. my intention. Um, but my, my intention was to go overseas, um, you know, backpack around, do all the things, explore, and then come back and continue on in my profession as a clinical psychologist. Um, but I, I like that idea. If you're stuck between option A or B, go with option C. And option C I hadn't even thought about was actually continuing my career overseas. I had never thought of that. Um, but turns out that's what, what I did. So my first, you know, we backpacked all around the world, got to the UK, um, and then I was able to uh, actually start working in my profession because there was a shortage there. And then that led to getting working visas. And then after being there for a couple of years, you're able to then apply for residency. Uh, and, and then I became a British citizen. So I, I have a British passport as well. Um, so, Good. but within that, my career really was quite, uh, quite strong and exciting in the UK um, and I, you know, really developed my clinical psychology pathway. I initially specialised in child and adolescent mental health services and then working in paediatric services in hospital settings. Um, so my passion on this really is about health, uh, the impact on health and illness and well-being. So that's, that's my big angle there. And I spent a lot of years actually working with people with cystic fibrosis. That was a big passion area of mine and I did a lot of work there. Um, and then I did wow. a third degree, my doctorate, um, in the School of Medicine at the University of Hull in the UK. And that's when I was learning about IPA, phenomenology. So phenomenological research is when you look at um, how people make sense of their experiences and the lived experience of, of uh -huh. things and, uh, and events that are meaningful to us. And so I, in searching for the, uh, the methodological approach for my doctorate, I, I was learning about phenomenology, phenomenology and figured this was exactly what I needed because the topic that I was looking at was looking at the impact of cross-infection measures and cystic fibrosis. So I needed something which looked at the person's individual experience and how they were impacted. So I very much saw that this was a really good approach. And around that time was when I had um, started thinking about applying this to eclipses, actually. Um, but it was just a, a, a thought, you know, like it was just a fleeting yeah. thought. But so I was just focused on learning the methodology, using the approach. And so I became quite involved in the um, IPA scene. IPA stands for Interpretative Phenomenological Analysis bit of a mouthful okay um it's also a brand of beer uh <laughs> well, so it's ipa yes. not it's the a, beer it's yeah. a style of beer it's a style of beer oh it's there you go yeah see you can tell i'm not yeah, a beer drinker beer. <laughs> <laughs> um but it was it was very much my uh, approach when i do something i throw my heart and soul into it um so i i was attending a lot of the the workshops on how to do phenomenological research the trainings on it 
And then I, I became quite involved in um, wanting to really learn the approach and, you know, doing my own project on that. In, you, you know, you're living and breathing it for a couple of years and, you know, successfully completing my doctorate using IPA in cystic fibrosis. Um, but within that, I was also um, becoming um, quite interested in phenomenology and supporting other researchers. So by that time, I'd got an academic position. I was assistant course director of the doctoral training program in clinical psychology. And um, so I was actually doing a lot of supporting for others uh, to use this approach. And for over a period of 10 years, and it sounds really strange for me to say this, but over a 10-year period, um, I set up a, a Northern Ireland IPA research network and we had wow. quite a lot of people coming through that network, um, about 80, I think it was, 80 different people from different professions, as broad as psychology to nursing to architecture. Um, and, you know, we had Erasmus students coming through. There were, there were a lot of, it was a very active group. And we met every two months on a Friday afternoon where we would sit around and talk about um, different um, research papers and methodologies and um, then problem-solve people's uh, projects to help get them moving. So I played a quite crucial role in Northern Ireland in terms of, in terms of that. And then, of course, I had my own research supervision that I did of the doctoral training students coming through. So there were a lot of pro projects coming out on that. So that's my career pathway, and um, that was all going swimmingly. So I was half clinical, half academic, very, very busy, and then I got sick. So, I mean, that that's, you know, you think you're going to do one thing and then sometimes you get thrown a curveball, right? So um, through that period, I, I actually had to stop work for quite a long time, and that's when oh. things sort of like took a, a detour, and it was my passion in in eclipses, really, that, um, you know, because that's always there. That that really took the focus of that when I wasn't able to work for a period of two years. I wasn't able to do much at all. So that's how that diverted. Um, so that was a turning point around, it was around 2014 or so. So I followed that well, psychology path. Yeah, sorry, you're going to ask something there, Letitia. So, yeah, I was going to ask because you wrote, you're, you're doing this study, mm -hmm. this phenomenal study, so when did you write, because I know I saw you in 2012, and you'd already written Total Addiction. Yep, yep. So so what year did you have? Yeah. So that, that Total Addiction book came out of those studies that you were doing. Yes, so because the, the psychology studies is what I was kind of talking about there. And then it was after my doctoral thesis was completed, you know, like how even though I was working multiple jobs and I was doing all that, I, was, I had spare time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and I thought, having done all the phenomenological research, I have to do it on eclipses. So eclipses. it's like that was the natural stepping stone. So from 2009, I think I just thought, no, no, I have to, I have to really research this. And if I backtrack a bit, it was in 2005 that we went to the um, Galapagos Islands to, to chase that hybrid eclipse. And Letitia, you were there as part of that group too. And that was, was a, 30 seconds. Yeah. It was a 30-second eclipse. But so, so worth all it. All of the addiction. <laughs> I know. I know. But that but that was just that that little boat had to have been just the hardcore, uh -huh. Uh -huh. I'm going to see it, hard to get to eclipse that just falls yeah. right into that whole, pe these people are 
addicted. Yes. And that was the first time because every eclipse that I'd chased up until that point, I was just traveling independently, doing my own thing. Sometimes you needed a, a you know, logistical support if you needed camels and what have you. <laughs> um, but that was the very first time that I joined Eclipse Chasing Tour. First time that I'd actually come across people similar to me. First time I found my community. And us all there being enclosed on that boat for, I can't remember how long it was, it felt like four a days, lifetime. Four days at sea. <laughs> Four days back. Yeah. And there was four no. Four days out to sea and four days back. back. And there was no contact with the outside world. And it was, you know, it was it was pretty special and unique. And at that yeah, point. Back when mobile phones and Wi Fi, nothing worked. Oh, but even, yeah, nothing You're worked. Seeing. And we were so isolated. Well, it was the, I still remember, was it Fred Brunch, Brunches? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Trying to get satellite weather data down off a satellite phone and it was just taking forever yeah I because mean, he was trying to get the latest weather site because we were trying to position the boat so we could see it well that yeah. happened to us in 2021 in antarctica same thing yeah yeah, Going yeah. across the drake passage it's like um ship can't talk to the satellite we're yeah we're and actually you, you back in how the isolated 15th you century you know yeah yeah <laughs> Um, but being in that environment um, and seeing all these people and hearing and just knowing, oh, my God, this is my tribe, this is my community. And really, I'd only been on that because I was fangirling, fangirling Fred Espinette because <laughs> I just thought if there's one time that I want to actually learn and meet the gurus, this is it, right? <laughs> so, and it wasn't just Fred on that tour. There was Jay Paskoff. Uh, there was David Levy. There was, um, I mean, Jen Winter organized the tour. Um, there's Fred Brunges. Um, there were, oh my goodness, I am probably disregarding very important people here. But to me, these were like the gurus. So I was always looking at the information that these people were providing. And so I thought, wow, I really want to meet these people. So that was a, that was a justification for me for actually, yeah, let's do this. Um, but it was on that boat that I realized, oh my gosh, we have so, there are so, there are stories to tell, phenomenological research. And initially I kept saying, someone should do this research. <laughs> someone should look into this. Um, but yeah, so the seed was planted. Yeah. That group, I'm pretty sure you tell, you told, you mentioned that to a few people and they go, that's a great idea for you. <laughs> No, no one said that at that point, you know. Nobody and said that? Not, no, I not at that point. But, uh, you know, at that point I was still, I was learning about um, IPA, learning about it, starting to get my project, you know, going, my, my uh, health project going. Um, so I wasn't thinking at that point I should research the eclipses because it just, you know, my psychology was over here. Eclipse chasing was just something I did almost like a dirty secret that nobody could understand. <laughs> but it was a huge part of my life. So they were kind of like very separate. Um, but the seed was planted. I think that was the first link when I realized, wow. And I remember coming back from that tour and then going to an IPA conference um, because I actually hosted a national IPA conference in Belfast. Uh, and, wow. But I think it was the year before that that we all the senior IPA people were out. Uh, it was in Brighton in England and we were sitting around a big long table and we were having discussions about the fact that, hey, I should do this research on the eclipse experience because everybody was saying, we'll come with you. You need research assistance. You need, you know, <laughs> like you need um, people to help interpret. Um, 
So, yeah, the seed was planted for a long time, but it was once I finished my doctorate that I realised, no, time is now. And then I started um, pitching academic press, basically, just to see, is, is does this idea have traction? And the first company that I that I approached, Springer, and they, they loved it. And so that, that's how my book project was born. The fact that it was an academic approach to exploring the experiences of a scientific event. Um, so they, that's how that book was born. And, you know, in hindsight, I look at that book and I was trying to bridge the gap between academic writing and writing for the general public. And I don't think I did a very good job at that. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes... I, yeah. Everybody everybody very much <laughs> respected you after that, though, because they thought a lot... A lot of the people I talked to in the community just said it was such just such a great book just doing that for us. Yeah, yeah. It certainly... Um, was the the first thing that I think ever really looked at the chasing community, and because I'd already been a part of the community for a long time, it was really interesting. And um, you know, I always I always joke about the the visual people in the community tend to be the the bearded men with telescopes. And and you know, when I was setting up all my Zoom sessions with people, there was that moment because you don't really know what people look like until you you know they, the image pops up on Zoom and. And then it's like, oh, yes, you have a beard. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> um, but well, they are certainly not the only eclipse chasers in the eclipse chasing community, but they tend to be the yeah. more visual ones. So, um, but it was really good. I mean, that that first book was really, I, I realised I had to explore the experiences of experienced chasers because they were the only ones who could put words to it. Like me, you know, you, I, it took years for me to be able to verbalise what happens and how, you know, put put any sense of word or meaning making. And sometimes it's still not easy. I've, I've seen five and I can't, I still can't verbalize it. That's I, yeah. I, I've seen yeah. 20. I, I, I've seen 20 and I have struggle with it. I still yeah. struggle with it. Yeah. And it's every time that, I can't, it's hard. I'm getting better, but I still can't explain to, you know, the lay person <laughs> or your sample family. size is zero and. Your standard <laughs> yeah. of deviation is high. How, how do I communicate <laughs> to this person? Exactly. In a, you know, in a way that connects with them. And it's, it's incredibly difficult and it takes yeah. years. Do you even want to do that? You know, and like, well, well yeah. of course, more people should be in the path. That, that's the goal. But that's the question, isn't it? Because I think it will always be ineffable. That is the whole defining feature of the eclipse oh, experience. That's the word. That it is will, the word. <laughs> The, the word to define something you cannot define. <laughs> Totality Talks is sponsored by American Paperware. It's paper that you wear. In 2017, they became a producer of safe ISO 12312-2 compliant glasses for solar observation. They've expanded their product line to include paper frame sunglasses with optically clear and thin-filled sunglass lenses. A great promotional platform for your logo, concept, or artwork to make a lasting impression. Use their Solar Eclipse Design Studio app to create your own custom glasses. American Paperware at ampaperware.com. Click the link down below. Please elaborate on 
that word ineffable because it's perfect. Yeah. yeah. So it's a recognition that there are some things that happen in our life that we just cannot put words to because, you know, and this, this relates to the phenomenological approach in that we experience the world through our senses, our, our senses. And, you know, we've got um, the, 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 the emotions that we feel and the physical sensations that we have. And then our brain actually takes all these things and tries to make sense of it. So there, is, there are two layers to things. It's our experience of something and then how we make sense of it. And making sense of it requires language. Um, but there are some things that are an embodied experience, which means that it impacts us on that very physical level. So, you know, during totality, all that stuff that happens to us beforehand, that's an embodied experience. It's not like we're sitting there saying to ourselves, right, now is the moment that I'm going to be a little bit freaked out by this. We don't say that. Our body just picks up on that. And then, you know, our primitive sense is that when things happen, we have to make a quick fire decision. Is this an opportunity or is this a threat? You know, are we under threat here? And when our brain operates like that, we get clarity in our thinking. You know, like, you know, that sensation that um, if you've ever been in a car accident, for example, that sensation that time stops and you just feel like you've got all those seconds seem to be expanded, right? Um, and that's an adaptive response in that our brain actually helps us take in as much information as possible to, to, to filter out what's important. What do we need to do? How do we actually get out of this scenario? And I believe that happens during totality because there's things that fundamentally shouldn't be happening that are very new and unexpected. And even though we know on a cognitive level that these changes are going to be made, we've all heard the words that our world is plunged into darkness even though we know that, um, it when it happens to you, it's an embodied experience. So that's what we mean about ineffable, that you can't put words to that. Um, so I'm describing it, but I'm actually taking it one level higher because I'm interpreting using language the experience, the embodied experience. And this is where we come into trouble because people can't put words to interpret their experience. So then you've got phenomenological researchers like me who take it one step further again. So I take people's interpretations of their embodied experience, right? Do you know what I mean? So we're two steps oh, yeah. away from the embodied experience. And we call that a double hermeneutic. And that just means that it's my interpretation of your interpretation of your embodied experience, right? <laughs> yeah. The triple entendre. Well, the, the triple hermeneutic comes in because then if you've got, you've got to be reflexive about this process. So often then you do need to actually then discuss and talk about the process with a, with a supervisor or, or someone who can help you with reflexivity. So there's a triple hermeneutic. You've got um, someone else interpreting your interpretation of their interpretation of an their embodied experience. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. na- navel gazing, some may say, but in fact... It is quite a rigorous approach. This is an academic approach to how we can understand people's embodied experiences. So this is as close as we can get to understanding people's experiences outside of a anecdote, right? So this is yeah. as close as we can get. And I think... Well, how, um, many, how many anecdotes does it take to, to make <laughs> a large enough sample size? It, it sounds like I mean, a joke, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Phenomenology yeah. is like, you know, we get all these anecdotes together and then we make them a, a data that's a, point, a series. Yeah. Of it's points. a great question because that that's that some different types of phenomenolo- 
phenomenological research differ in what that answer is. Um, to be a truly phenomenological approach, one, one data set is all it takes because you're entering that person's life world to be able to interpret their experience, to make sense of their experience in that context. Um, can you generalise that to everybody? No, you can't. But what you can do is by repeatedly looking at individuals and pulling out the essence of their experience, there are commonalities. And so if you know that there are enough similarities in the people that you pull experiences from, then you can make some um, judgment about what those commonalities, 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 thank you. Commonality. I thought phenomenology was what I was going to be <laughs> stumbling on <laughs> or interpretative phenomenological analysis. No, commonality. <laughs> um, so if you pull enough of the individual accounts um, and then you look at if, if there's enough um, similarities in people, um, you can actually then pull all these individual accounts and look for the commonality of experience across them. And then you're able to make some comments about what that essence of the experience is. So that's what I've been able to do with the total eclipse experience because in doing so many individual interviews, so many accounts and helping people make sense of their experiences, then I do that further step of what are the commonalities here? What are What is the essence of it? So it sounds like a very simple um, you know, like a journalistic approach, but it's really very time-consuming, rigorous. If it's done in an academic way, it really is quite rigorous. So, um, it, you know, this is about how we research and understand human behaviour and human experience. So I have a question. How do, how do you do that amongst different cultures? You have you know, a Western culture. You've got, you yeah. know, all different types of Hundreds, if not thousands, of cultural societies. Have you ever gone through and like you know, the regions and areas, and how does that? Yeah, because those are, um, you know, looking at individual cultures. I haven't. I, it wasn't until well after twenty twelve that I started then looking at. Okay, we need to really amp up the um, researching people's experiences after totality. So it only started from then, <laughs> and I did have some uh, experience in twenty sixteen. Uh, I went to Indonesia. And so I did do local interviews as well as Western interviews and I stayed on. It was part of Nyepi um, celebrations as well. Um, so I did stay on and do some work there for that. Um, but coming back to the original question, because it's, it's about, you know, how, how can you make assumptions? Uh, so there's, there's two challenges to phenomenological research. The first is language and the second is culture. Um, language because we can only interpret people's experiences by the language and the words that they say. So, you know, this comes back to that ineffable experience. If you can't, if you're someone who cannot uh, make sense of your experience, you have no words, I cannot interpret your experience if there are no words, right? So this is a problem in, in research. So, you know, that's why using phenomenological research with children is a bit of a challenge because sometimes they don't have the language to be able to give you enough to make interpretations. There are some people who are better than others at being able to make sense of their experience. So what I tend to do when I do this research is to do a bit of a two-stage approach to recruitment. I do a survey, a general survey, so lots of people can fill it in. 
Um, but I deliberately put open-ended questions on there because I want to then screen out people who can talk more. Uh, and they're the ones that I then do the next level to see, okay, um, because if I don't do that, I'm, I could be interviewing thousands of people and, and not have material to, not enough material to interpret. Um, because everything that I need is actually hap- what happens in that moment of, <laughs> you know, the two-minute moment. People have to be able to talk yeah. about that. A lot of in- experienced chasers take photos. Their two-minute experience is focused on stress of the cameras not working and time going short. That's not the experience of totality. Not and so, yeah, yeah I, I can't it's Watch the that. eclipse, the, the mantra for a lot of us who set up computer scripts yeah, to yeah. run yeah, they cameras. Do that now. Is, yeah. And it's like you give up at some point. You're like, yeah. you know what? Okay, it's running. I will look once at it, but that's it. It's done. Yep. And, and the mantra is, watch the eclipse, not your gear. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and, you know, and so people are like, I want to photograph it. It's like, don't, just don't photograph your first one. Like, yeah. do your first one and then decide how much effort you want to put in it. Because I met a fellow that's a photographer. He saw one in 2017, didn't do anything to him. He was messing with his camera the whole time. And it's like... It wasn't that impactful of an experience for you? And he's like, no, not really. I was just trying to take pictures of it. Like- and we hear it all the time. And it's like whenever I do a lot of the interviews, it's really clear then I'm not actually talking to someone about the experience of totality. I'm talking about the experience of photog- photographing totality. <laughs> and the problem with these days, you know, um, uh, what do you call them? Um you know, smartphones and everything. It's all about everybody is everybody has a camera. Everybody wants to do the photography. So in 2017, there are people who were saying, "Well, you know, it wasn't that exciting." It's like, well, actually, you didn't experience it. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And you know how I said that. Um, you know, when you're in those moments of totality, it's your first time. It completely blows you away. If you're not actually observing it and watching it, you're not part of it. Your brain is that you're telling your brain you've got to focus on this, this tech. Yeah. Quick, time's running out. This tech is important. Yeah. So instead of focusing on the embodied experience and then your own um, evolutionary processes kicking into gear, that's when you get that that incredible response. People are blunting that. People are blunting that by actually giving their mind a, an alternative focus. So yeah. you're that's taking the your challenge. brain out of the game. You're not yeah. in the game, 100. Yeah. percent It's 99. Yeah, you can still, yeah. you can still have quite a powerful experience, even though you're photographing yeah. it. But yeah. those that, um, in my experience of having talked to many, 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 many people, um, the experience is different. So it it yeah. it does impact on it. And I'm not saying that they don't have the same experience because they, you know, they they can and they do. But you talk to any experienced eclipse chaser now, they they automate, like you're saying. Um, they they want to switch off, they want to enjoy the experience. And I think that's the way to go. Yeah. Totality Talks is brought to you by TexasEclipses.com where you can get the book, Texas Solar Eclipses. Learn about solar eclipse safety, the total solar eclipse in Texas of 1878, other recent total solar eclipses, 
how technology influences our experience, and citizen eclipse science then and now. That's texaseclipses.com. Click the link down below. That's one of the challenges, language of actually trying to get people to explain it because then, you know, and I, I get sent lots of stories. Here's my story about the my totality experience. But it's all about the journey there and then the tech issues, two lines about the experience and then the traffic jams home. <laughs> I can't analyse anything in that, you know, I can't do that. So language is important and people think that they're talking about the experience of totality when they're not. So it's filtering that out as well. So yeah. It, yeah. it takes a little while to figure out and it's taken many years to figure out who the best people are to talk to. Um, and, you know, that's that's one thing. And they have to – so not only do they have to have that experience where it wasn't really taken up with anything else, they have to have be someone who can put that into words. So it's – having those two things together is really hard. So language is difficult and challenging, um, but we can make sense of it. You know, like over the years I've been able to pull out the essence of it. And as I say, you know, my little sound bite is that totality happens above you, around you, and within you. And that reflects. I, I love that. Um, the, yeah, and it's so much easier to say, right, <laughs> instead of, yes. wow, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. um, so language you is one. It. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It took me ages to come, you know, to really figure out I need a sound bite because even though, you know, journalists now will say, well, I know you know, I know it's kind of uh, life transformational, but can you just say in three, three sen- two sentences, <laughs> what is it like? Um, anyway, so the second well, is brevity, about... <laughs> the brevity of that is what makes it so perfect. It's just, yes. You know, brevity or, is a sort or, or, of wit. Yeah, I'm almost saying now it's... Explaining it to people as well. Yeah, it happens above you, Randy, within actually, you, and it's ineffable. <laughs> and ineffable. I think I'm going to use the word embodied, though. I'm going to because I still have to come up with a soundbite, and I like that word embodied experience. Yeah, it's our embodied experience because it is. It, it's 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 like you said, around you, within you, everything. But it is that yeah. embodied experience. It's, it, it just it touches you at a physical level mm-hmm. that you yeah. have the knowledge up here, but it just touches you at a, such a physical, for me, soul level. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because in the second way, you know how I said there were two challenges to phenomenological research. One is language. Second is culture. And so, and this comes up because, and it's really interesting because we, phenomenological research isn't about uh, making sense of someone's experience from our own position. So what I have to do as a skilled phenomenological researcher is um, strip back uh, any of my presuppositions and come into the position of you know an inquiring person entering that person's life world so that's why phenomenologic interviews can take a good hour two hours like you really do make sense of how they're experiencing it from within their world and so if they're able to put words to it they're able to then tell you about how their cultural experiences shape the way they make sense of things um, and so that's based on the questions I ask and, and everything like that. Uh, and so, you know, we can assume that everybody has the same cultural reference and we experience it in the same way, but that's not the case. And our cultural understandings and our belief and faith structures all influence how we make sense of an experience. 
So, for example, if you've got one person who is a complete strong atheist and then uh, someone who's extremely religious, they will make sense of it in different ways. They will experience the same event in their own embodied way, but the way they make sense of it and interpret the meaning for it will be different. And so the differences will come out in their accounts. And you still then have to look at, well, what are, what are the commonalities, even though there are those differences? So I'm always mindful that you can't, you know, for religion, for example, you can't actually say this is a non-religious event or, or this is a religious event because people have a different mm. viewpoint, it's, right? It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's yeah. never a dichotomous and it's, it's, um, it's never but Whether you're religious or not, we are all going around that ball. Yeah. That yeah. Ball. yeah, the yeah. fire that is the source of our life. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's well. From what you actually just said, probably there are groups out there that are flat earthers who will disagree with you. <laughs> well, they're so, not listening to this podcast. We took a poll. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think they're listening to the podcast because they don't, they don't believe it's going to happen because it's orbital <laughs> dynamics. They don't believe in orbital orbital dynamics. This oh. is the kryptonite of yeah. the flat earther. Yeah. I love the way that you said that because I'm just realizing one of the things that's happened to me as um. I started following my husband around to Magic Club, Magic Club, and now I'm calling, I'm, I'm calling it God's best magic trick, mm-hmm. because now my 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 culture where I'm coming from is magic. Yep, the whole magic phenomena, you know, being amazed and everything else, and I'm calling it God's best magic trick. Yeah, <laughs> lately, and that's the that's because the that's, whole joy. That's of now it. my culture. Yeah, yeah. that's because that's we, now my culture. Yeah. And of course, we interpret things based on our experiences and the things, the way we think about things, the people we spend our time with. Of course, that influences how we interpret and make sense of our experience. And so you remember, it's about separating. It's the embodied experience, the lived experience of totality. So that's, that's something that is the core. And um, so you don't need to get into that second la- level of interpretation about, you know, whether you're a flat earther or a very deeply religious person or a strongly agnostic person or you know that's irrelevant because you you still have that same um lived experience it's not irrelevant for you because you draw upon those things to interpret your own sense of it um so for me for example i'm not a religious person i see it as a spiritual event um and i see that as a connection to the universe um as you know as something that is vast that's out there and that, um, you know, there are coincidences in scale and it's the immensity of it that adds to that sense of insignificance, a part of something greater. Yes. So for me, it, it is like understanding positioning in the world. So that's my framework rather than a religious framework or a, um, you know, flat earth framework or a science framework. Um and so when we go to different cultures and experience, actually even within our same culture, people will interpret it differently. So we have to be accepting of that. And there's no right or wrong way of interpreting the experience that someone has. So there is no right or wrong way on that. Um, when I, In 2016, when I went to Indonesia, so I, I travelled to Palu and Sulawesi, and I was invited to be part of, this is really interesting. <laughs> so there was like a Western festival that was happening and um, so I went to that festival a few days beforehand. Uh, we talked a little bit about the eclipse experience. And then in the day, the day after the eclipse, I went there and in the, you know, temporary girl that was set up, the yurt, I, we did a whole eclipse 
love-in session and I did lots of individual interviews. I had very specific questions to ask these people. And so I got a lot of research from that particular event that I, I actually use a lot of that material in some of my lectures and presentations. Um, so that was a really good thing. That was a Western festival. At the same time, I was invited by um, the, was it the Minister of Education for Sulawesi or Palu, can't quite recall, but I gave a presentation at the university there. And that was a very big deal because I was a female and I was coming in as a Western person, coming in to, to um, talk to Muslim. the university environment. Very, very big deal. Um, it, was a, it was an extreme privilege. And then I was talking, I, I, I remember <laughs> the, the biggest culture shock was that they don't use Macs at all. So I couldn't use my... <laughs> <laughs> my material um so i was presenting just off the cuff and that's fine I, I that's what i can do um but i was mindful that the one question i was asked at the end was uh about am i suggesting that the eclipse is bigger than allah and i think questions like that says to me okay i didn't quite i wasn't mindful about looking at people I'm sorry did culture. you say bigger that the eclipse is bigger than than what Allah Allah Allah, Allah. okay so I yes that well. that was really quite a um, I mean I think that was an absolutely great question um, but it, it just highlighted that and the way I responded to that was that you know we interpret things in different ways so you know the experience is the same the embodied exactly what I've been talking about here. And it's 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 our interpretation of it. So in no way am I saying that that is is greater. Um, but it is in a sense. Like they, don't all the religions of the world start with the same typical, or, you know, same similar type of beings from the sky came down? Yeah, but in and some they, ways, that's and, and, and I don't see so it, that. It's like yeah, we are being. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't see that. I see it as that okay. it's just a separation of the embodied experience. So the embodied experience is the experience of totality. And so, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I was talking about the religions. Yeah. Like when they say it's, it's oh, greater right. than yeah. Allah, and it's or it's greater than Jesus, or it's greater than the religions of all the world. Uh, what's you know, I find it amazing that we have the religions of all the world, and then the agnostics, the atheists. We all still have this experience of us on earth underneath the shadow of the moon there is a way to bring us all together and maybe we aren't meant to know where our origins yeah and And i think these these conversations can happen outside of religion because it's the embodied experience that we're looking at and how individually we make sense of it so it doesn't have to be something that separates us at all no matter what your culture is you're still that individual person standing on that rock <laughs> looking up having this amazing transformational experience well i think it's a great connector regardless it of is. Yeah. religious belief yeah, that, that's is. my that's where i was going with that it's just yeah yeah it, it's it should be a great connector we're all human beings on this planet experiencing yeah this moment yeah. together and, and, and we are never more connected than yeah. this moment and that's, I think that's the, the, one of the fundamental things about the eclipse experience. You know how you're, you're there and you know, I mean, either in your immediate vicinity or just, you know, along the whole path, you know that everyone is stopping what they're doing and looking up at the same time. 
Now, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, <laughs> I don't know what will, because that, that is something that is so profoundly unique about the experience of totality, right? You know, people stop what they're doing yeah. and they look up and they experience it and they they have the same lived experience. They interpret things differently, but the same lived experience. I can't think of any other example. You've got more localised examples like, you know, these big games or the Super Bowl where you've got people coming together and, you know, anyone who's part of those big crowds will have the same thing. It's It, it gives you goosebumps. You're part of a collective thing in that moment. It doesn't matter what your religion is or maybe it matters what side you're going for. <laughs> See, that that, it does. that actually is a good, good thing because who – the way you think about it and what it makes, what it's meaning for you, one team or the other, determines your experience of it. You know, are you going to leave there in a good mood or a bad mood? <laughs> um, but fundamentally, no matter who wins, the experience is amazing. So, you know, so we can talk about it from localised perspective, but I don't think there's very many things in this world, in our lives, that people come together um, to experience something all together. That's a positive thing. So the other example is yeah. na nature events that draw people um, that have to live in the moment, like earthquakes and hurricanes and cyclones and fires and all those things. But they're 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 challenging events. So there's there's to me it's unlike any other experience. that's it for part one of our chat with Dr. K. Look for part two next week. We are stepping up our game and releasing new episodes fortnightly now as we gear up for the April 8th event. As always, clear skies.